This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Kate Andrews, James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. Now, we've just heard from Kwasi Kwarteng presenting what had been dubbed in some quarters as a mini-budget. However, with £45 billion worth of tax cuts estimated, it isn't at all small. Fraser, I think everyone's just trying to take in what exactly has just happened. But when it comes to the, the headline figures or the headline policy announcements that we've just heard from the new Chancellor, there is that stamp duty cut. There's also income tax cut is being brought forward. And there's news about the 45p rate. Can you give us that? Well, politically, the big surprise is that Kwasi Kwarteng has just done what George Osborne wanted to do, tried to do, what Rishi Sunak thought he might do if everything went well, he's abolished the additional rate for people earning over 150 grand. Now, this means that the effective tax paid by those lucky enough to earn that high figure goes down from 47p to 42p in the pound, a massive tax cut and bigger than from any other income group. So the big winners from Kwasi Kwarteng's budget aren't really first-time buyers or your average workers. They're getting a 1p income tax cut. I mean, that's welcome. But the big winners will be the highest paid. And it's funny, when Rachel Reeves stood up to give her response, Shadow Chancellor, she attacked him for not implementing a windfall tax. She hadn't quite internalised the magnitude of the political gift that Kwasi Kwarteng has just given them. From now on, they will be able to say that when push came to shove, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's first priority was to cut the tax for the richest. Now, the funny thing is that this is a far bigger political deal than it is an economic deal. The government takes about £900 billion of people's money through taxation, and abolishing the additional rate of tax would cost about £2 billion. That's relatively small, not just in the general scale of taxation, but in the scale of the £45 billion worth of tax cuts done today. I mean, the biggest tax cut, of course, was not implementing a tax rise. Rishi Sunak had wanted to jack up corporation tax to a 25 pence, and that was cancelled. That cost £18 billion. The second biggest tax cut was abolishing Rishi Sunak's increase of national insurance. That cost £18 billion. Then after that, it's relatively small things. The stamp duty cost £2 billion, and then the 45p rate as well. So the the most expensive measures were the ones not taken, or, or the ones already advertised. But politically, this is quite an audacious budget, because he's gambling a lot. Now, I have been arguing against the additional rate of tax since it was imposed. Gordon Brown imposed it on his last month of 13 years of Labour government. It never really raised much, and it sent a signal that Britain was uncompetitive in a market where countries need to compete for people. I think it's good and it will help, but it won't help that much. Scanning through this budget, I'm not quite sure I see the game-changing changes promised by Simon Clark. And what I do see is a change in the financial markets. I think £80 billion more is going to be borrowed. That was how they're going to finance this. That's a hell of a lot of money to borrow. And the markets are now going to be in a position where they have to answer the question, will this budget create growth to compensate for the fiscal giveaway? 
Now, there's no OBR forecast because this is not an official budget. Okay, but do we have a sense in terms of how this is landing? How are the markets responding? Well, we have some rough numbers, as Fraser just laid out. We're expecting $45 billion worth of tax cuts. The Institute for Fiscal Studies says that this is the biggest tax-cutting event since 1972. We're expecting between 70 and £80 billion pounds more of borrowing. Capital Economics put some figures on that. Public borrowing is going to be up to over £230 billion pounds in 22-23. It was originally thought to be around £133 billion. Pounds. And I think what's more concerning is that by 2024-2025, the UK is still expected to be borrowing over £100 billion a year. And the sense here is that the days of fiscal responsibility, the days of the Conservative Party saying that we care about things like budget deficits and the overall debt burden, are pretty much out the window. Now, the Chancellor said that more would be coming. He said that he's going to be doing his update on fiscal responsibility soon, but it's very clear that tax cuts here are the priority. And the question is how markets respond to that and do they punish you? Because James was saying this very well before we started this podcast, if the markets aren't going to punish you for borrowing the sum of money, why not do it? You know, why not just keep spending and spending? But we are getting some early indications. I mean, we're going to be following the the value of the pound all day. But Sky News' Faisal Islam uh, is reporting the biggest daily rise in 10-year yield for UK borrowing since 1998. It's up quite significantly and the biggest daily rise in five-year yields since 1991, up nearly half a percent. The suggestion here is that perhaps markets aren't so comfortable with the idea that Liz Truss is going to borrow to deliver everything that she wants to give and that this idea that there aren't tough choices, that you really can do all these tax cuts and you can just borrow the money to do so, isn't the new economic rule. COVID hasn't changed everything and it's going to be really interesting to track this in the days to come. James, when we're looking at the other measures in this budget, so we we talked about the top rate, what else was there? Because ultimately, as Fraser was saying, the idea and what Liz Truss is trying to do with her chancellor is to boost growth. Now, they've talked about 2.5, but generally to get the economy going. Are there some announcements today that point to how they're going to do this? So various plans to speed up critically important national infrastructure, the planning for that. We talked about, we heard about these special investment zones, which are are essentially, it seems to me, a a piecemeal way of trying to do planning reform place by place. Boris Johnson shied away from a nationwide, England-wide liberalisation of the system after the defeat in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election. What Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng seem to be trying to do is kind of piecemeal planning reform. Planning reform in this place, planning reform in that place, and hope to get some benefit there. You know, Kwasi Kwarteng also said we'd see more on the supply side in the coming weeks from all ministers, he suggested, that all departments were going to come forward with things. Now, I think there is a fundamental question here, which is they have gone all out for growth. And I think they've talked so much about this 2.5% target, but they need to be either hitting that or very close to it in 2024, electorally. And I think that that is the question. I mean, they are taking two gambles here. One is that they can get growth to 2.5%, in which case I think they think all the distributional arguments will fall away. The second thing they are betting is that you can do this and the markets will still have an appetite for the £70 billion extra the UK government is planning to borrow compared to April at a time when the Bank of England is also doing quantitative tightening. Fraser, there's an interesting question here, which is, 
Obviously, this is a gamble. We just explained the reasons why it could backfire. What do you think ministers will be looking at for? Because it's quite interesting because we've been talking about the reaction from the market. Now, Chris Philp, who is Chief Secretary of the Treasury, he quote tweeted Ed Conway when the pound spiked early on. And he said, great to see sterling strengthening on the back of the new UK growth plan. Now, since he tweeted that, it's been falling pretty fast. So that is obviously an embarrassing tweet. But do you think ministers are braced for the market reaction that we're currently seeing? Well, a lot, unfortunately, now depends on what the markets do think about this. I mean, Quasi Quartang's talking about 2.5% of growth. That's a fairly heroic figure. So the big question, of course, is, sure, he's taken all these political risks, he's borrowing all this extra money, but will it actually purchase the growth promised? This is called a growth plan that is being spun by ministers as a growth plan. Now, the OBR has been silenced, so we don't know what it thinks the effect on growth will be. But it won't be long before we get Citibank, Capital Economics, other people seeing if they will revise up their growth forecast as a result of this. If nobody does, and it looks as if we're still stuck with stagnation, but the growth plan will be seen to have failed. Now, that's not to say it will fail, because typically the markets do tend to underrate the impact of supply-side reform. Nobody really worked out that David Cameron's tax cuts would have such a profound effect on employment growth. That was a constant surprise to the markets. But politically, they are in a dangerous position. That's why we saw this rather bizarre tweet from Chris Phil, almost as if he is saying, judge us by what the markets do. As far as I can work out, the the pound is down by about 1.2% against the dollar this morning. And the dollar has been strong. But if they're going to point to arbiters of whether they succeeded or not, I would advise them not to look at the markets. The markets are pretty freaked, all the more freaked out because the measurements of the OBR have been suspended and people are still grappling around trying to work out what's going on. And James, what's the reaction from MPs been so far? There are definitely a few nervous faces from the Chancellor's making these announcements, largely from backers of Rishi Sunak. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you are right, Katie. Which is, if you back Liz Truss, you back someone who was going to upend the Treasury orthodoxy, who talks about the idea of trying to make the to make sure that what's coming in and what's going out add up. It's kind of abacus economic. And I think there is no doubt that within the Tory party, Liz Truss has a mandate for what she is doing. I think the question now is does it work? All the politics of this depends on its effectiveness, essentially. And I think one one of the things they've done is something that we were talking about the other day, Katie, is this is not going to be a score draw. This is going to end either in in triumph or the other thing, right? And the point about this is that they they are not going for a kind of middle ground approach. This is this is this is a kind of they, they have kind of almost kind of thrown the kitchen sink at it in this budget and they are betting that that is going to get growth going i mean this is this is this is the call and this is where expectations are now set now i was quite struck talking to one minister who's very sympathetic to what they were doing and his worry is that expectations have been calibrated in the wrong way but this 2.5 percent figure is now going to be hung around their necks and it would have been better to say we're doing all this stuff to stimulate the economy in the hope of avoiding a deep recession that there otherwise would have been i think that we will this budget when the election result comes in in 2024 on election night, whatever that election result is, this budget will be regarded as the moment that explains it. Either because it was a moment that shocked the UK out of this cycle of low growth that it has been in since the financial crisis, or because this budget came to be seen as a moment when the Tories lost their reputation for fiscal conservatism and therefore opened the door for Labour. I think it, it, it's going to be one of those things. You, sometimes you see an event in politics and you can't, you don't know how it is going to play. 
for, for certain either way. But you know that it is going to determine the result of the next election. And I think this is one of those moments. Kate, you're formerly of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Coming over from Parliament, there are lots of people in the lobby saying, you know, this is an IEA budget, the IEA are now in having the influence. Which of the two outcomes do you think it is from which James was just describing in terms of is this going to be seen as a, a moment of, uh, where things started to move towards a Tory election win or actually uh, towards a Tory election disaster? Well, my friends in the free market think tanks are so far seem very delighted with this budget. The press releases that are coming through are are very positive. The Taxpayers Alliance has said that it's the most tax-friendly budget for taxpayers that they can remember in recent history. Half a decade, there, sorry, half a century, according to the IFS. There's a lot of there's a lot of praise there. I'll tell you what worries me. Uh, I think Fraser's completely right when he says that tax cuts tend to be underappreciated and they tend not to get the credit from forecasters when it comes to how they can actually impact growth. Tax cuts are supply-side reform, and in that sense, she has done major supply-side reforms today. But is there anything in the growth plan, not my words, the treasuries, which is going to get us to 2.5% growth out of what is we expect to be a recession that we're living through right now? And this is where I'm a bit more hesitant, I suppose, to, to celebrate so quickly, because whilst we got some major tax cuts, we did not get other kinds of supply side reforms today. I mean, the chancellor said that planning reform was going to be coming down the line, but we don't know what that looks like. It's very hard to imagine that Liz Truss is going to be able to do much without a new mandate when it comes to seriously building more homes. The stamp duty reform today, well, I'm, I'm sure will you know please many people who are out there looking for new homes right now, especially for time buyers, this is not actually revolutionary stuff, especially compared to what people were speculating Liz Truss might do when it comes to to planning reform and and those kinds of supply side reforms. So to have promised 2.5% growth as a trend and to have announced, yes, major tax cuts, but also major, major borrowing and very little supply side reforms in the areas that we know continue to be very clogged up, like planning, like health. And to, you know, maybe they haven't kicked the can down the road for too long. It's possible in a November budget we're going to get huge updates about city deregulation and about planning deregulation, but we haven't seen it yet. So I suppose the reason I'm holding back and, and, and not celebrating as a lot of my friends are today is when I actually look at this budget, I see some growth plan, but I really don't see what gets us to 2.5%. And just and just finally, Kate, lots of people listening will wonder what it means for their own household budget or, or income. Can you give us a little bit of an update depending on your salaries? If you're an average earner in the UK, around £30,000 a year, you're going to be saving close to £400 come next year. If you're a very lucky person who's closer to earning £200,000 a year, you're saving over £4,000 a year. I mean, if you go from, you know, sort of the, the lower end, of the salary range up to £200,000. It's not exactly perfect, but as you go up the salary ladder, you're saving more and more. Now, to be very clear, Liz Truss is content with this, as is Quasi Quartang. I thought it was remarkable and very ideologically punchy that he said at the end of his budget today that the UK had focused far too long on the redistribution argument and it was time now to go for growth. They are not concerned about the idea that their tax cuts will disproportionately benefit the rich. Their argument is the rich are paying the most taxes anyway. They're willing to have this argument, which does suggest to me that they might be willing to do other kinds of bold supply-side reforms in the future. But to James's point, 
point about the MPs, a lot of this is going to come down to what is tolerable within her own party, not just what's tolerable within public discourse. And there she may have some more problems. Every single voter now is going to be saying to these Tory MPs, you just want to take tax cuts for the rich. It's a very difficult charge to argue. I mean, Liz Truss was struggling to explain the logic for bankers' bonus cap removal. And that's actually quite easy to explain, that we want that these bonuses are split pretty much 50-50 with the government. Well, now 60-40. But, you know, you want more people to pay tax in Britain. It's harder to say, look, this government has run out of money, we're borrowing shed loads. Why is it that the biggest tax cuts in this country are going to those who are earning the most? Lots of Tory MPs are not looking forward to having that conversation. Now, this is, you know, as James argued in his Times column today, this is a very big shift in Conservative talk, in Conservative action. They've spent more than a decade trying everything not to be able to put in this position. So Liz Truss and Quasi Quarton have just jumped straight in. So the argument there, of course, is that, you know, this is what's needed to get growth. We need entrepreneurs to come to Britain. It's going to be a new vocabulary for a lot of Tory MPs. I doubt many of them are looking forward to using that vocabulary. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Kate. And thank you, James.